Welcome to the Michigan Minds Podcast, a quick and informative analysis of today's top issues from University of Michigan faculty. Welcome, Dr. McCarthy. Thank you so much for joining Michigan Minds. Would you please introduce yourself to our audience and share a little bit about your experiences at the University of Michigan and the Department of Veterans Affairs? Yes, thank you so much for inviting me to talk uh, as part of this. And um, again, my name is John McCarthy. So I'm in the psychiatry department at the University of Michigan Medical School. I'm a research associate professor. And um, I started out coming to Michigan for a master's in public health. I transitioned to health policy and, and I got my PhD in health services organization and policy. And along the way to pay the rent, I took a job at this center in the VA, that's um, the Vet Department of Veterans Affairs, based in Ann Arbor called SMITRAC, which is the Serious Mental Illness Treatment Resource and Evaluation Center. I started as a data analyst, finished my PhD, um, have hung around for a long time, and have been directing the center since 2013. I also have a role in, uh, another role in headquarters, because this center is based in VA headquarters. We're just physically located in Michigan. Um, and um, the other role is in the um, suicide prevention program within the Office of Mental Health and Suicide Prevention. That's our larger office. And I'm the director for data and surveillance and suicide prevention, which really flows from work that we've developed um, here in Ann Arbor over many years. Wow, that's so incredible, the, you know, the way that you ended up there and then really grew into those roles. Can you share a little bit more about where your work focuses? Let's see. When I started at the center, again, it was focused on veterans with serious mental illness. There was a real concern about um, veterans who were experiencing homelessness and how to improve care for this population. But at that time, there really wasn't a lot of information about the veteran population with schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and other psychotic disorders. And um, my training in public health was really helpful because that was really all about population health approaches. And I had a lot of experience working in relatively large data. So we were able to develop the VA's National Psychosis Registry, which was a resource within VA for understanding the population of VA patients with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, uh, the national level, at the regional network level, and at the local facility level. And so we, we developed this as this grand report that characterized the demographics and utilization and pharmacy and costs um, and some outcome measures for this population. And that became really a great resource as the VA was transitioning from really in the mid nineties, VA transitioned from being a bunch of separate hospitals to really being an integrated health system. And so, you know, part of that was to bring together information and data and the VA's electronic health system was really unparalleled at that time. And so um, we developed this population health approach and um, drew work around patients with serious mental illness and then from that, we also expanded work looking at access to mental health care for veterans in primary care settings, because the idea was that there is substantial unmet need 
for mental health treatment for veterans who come to primary care and who might feel uncomfortable crossing the threshold into a you know, specialty mental health clinic setting. And so VA was focusing on having mental health providers physically located in primary care. I went on vacation and when I came back, my boss said, can you do this? And I was like, yes, of course, you know, this sounds great, but it was really a lot of learning on my part and um, really exciting. So we had experience with population health from a focus on patients with serious mental illness, with um, national evaluation with this primary care mental health integration effort. And also, you know, with the war in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq really heating up, uh, there was substantial public attention to the consequences of service and to the problem of suicide among VA patients and among veterans more broadly. And at that time, there were really only limited studies for particular veteran subgroups. There really wasn't information on whether veterans had elevated risk for suicide. And so building on, again, the population work, we submitted a comprehensive search of the CDC's National Death Index for vital status and cause of death information for all VA patients and published the first study on suicide among VA patients. And so that was really groundbreaking. And when we did this huge search of National Death Index data, I thought, we're not going to do this again. Like, this is just kind of one, one big deal. And, you know, it's just, it's such an investment. But VA really dove in, and we've been doing that every year. And then in 2012 or so, uh, we began, combined with the Department of Defense, doing really massive national death index searches for all veterans. So not just you know, veterans who are coming to VA for healthcare, and that's really only the minority of the veteran population, but for the entire veteran population. And so that's why I also have this other hat in suicide surveillance because kind of it all just kind of grew. And um, so those are my major areas of focus, kind of access, um, quality of care, suicide and primary care mental health integration. I'm so happy that we are able to talk with you this week with Veterans Day approaching and those being the areas that you've really dedicated your work, you know, these issues like veterans, mental health and suicide prevention. And you have done extensive studies on these topics and worked in them a lot, as you were saying. And so I want to start off with just a bit of an overview of what we will dive into in the you know amount of time that we have today for the podcast. So can you you know help us start off kind of broad and explain the importance of examining the mental health services that are available to veterans and how those services are utilized? Sure. And I should note I'm not a clinician. You know, I'm a a data person from public health with public health training. And so I work with many clinicians and uh, really brilliant psychologists and psychiatrists over many years. Um, so I really rely on them for a lot of the content expertise. But I feel that mental health challenges affect everyone. I, I don't wanna go into detail, but um, you know I have had experiences with mental illness, um, in my non-work life um, that have really conveyed how critical it is to have mental health access and access to good quality of care 
Uh, as for physical illness, you know, if I break my elbow, you know, skiing, I, you know, want to be able to get help and from help from people who can help out. Um, if there's a mental health crisis, having people who understand what that means and how to help people and to do it in a respectful way is really critical. As part of my PhD training uh, in health policy, I had a lot of background around the ways in which healthcare may not work well. You know, healthcare is delivered by human beings. And, you know, if you look at human history, there's a lot of ways in which human experiences have not gone well. And um, the delivery of healthcare, although we would like to think that it's, um, it's science and it's fair and it's correct and all of that um, is human. In high school, I read a book called The Citadel by A.J. Cronin, and I totally recommend it for listeners. This is the Uncle Tom's Cabin for Healthcare. Uh, this was written in the 20s or 30s. And just as at least Abraham Lincoln said, Uncle Tom's, Tom's Cabin led to the American Civil War, which is probably too much um, to attribute. The Citadel led to the British National Health System. You know, it's, it's a great book because it highlights challenges of fairness and access, challenges of quality of care, uh, challenges of money and how it can affect human behavior. So it's just a, a really wonderful story. They made a heartwarming movie out of it in the 30s as well, which is a good movie too. So I had read that and that plus the kind of medical sociology background that I got helped me to come into the VA and try to find ways in which care wasn't working as well as it might. And that's really the wonderful thing about the work that we do in VA is we're trying to find ways to improve care. And um, I'll just say that in my nearly 23 years with VA so far, um, I've had the chance to do site visits at 32 facilities. Uh, we've done maybe 11 national program assessments. I've spoken with lots and lots of people, and I'm really impressed by the commitment throughout the VA uh, for everyone in the organization to the mission of serving veterans. And it's also a fascinating place to work because as opposed to other health systems, this is a national experiment in healthcare delivery. And, um, you know, Congress, the House Veterans Affairs Committee, the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee routinely review the quality and access for care with a focus often on mental health care or issues of suicide prevention um, in VA. And so, you know, it's a very kind of exciting place to work. I sometimes joke with people that it's kind of a bureaucratic job where you're on the edge of your seat, you know, all the time as a kind of data health policy person, it's been a very exciting and, and personally satisfying place to work and fascinating too. As you were you know, going through all of those numbers, it really got me excited to ask this next question. Um, the, I'm sorry, 
as you were going through the numbers of how many site visits you've had and um, all these different components of your career so far, it got me excited to ask you this next question. So can you provide an overview of some of the studies that you have conducted around mental health and suicide prevention in the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs and share kind of what led you to these areas and some of the ways that you've engaged mental health and suicide prevention initiatives? Sure, uh, and I'll try to keep it brief. Um, it's kind of a function of what's going on generally in the scientific world, what is on the radar of people in leadership roles uh, in VA or in Congress, for example, and kind of a, a almost random, you know, what tools do you have in the moment, you know? Because um, part of what we do is we're able to shine a light on different issues. Um, and there's a, a, a real appetite from leadership for information that will lead to action. And so if we discover a new technique for measuring something, then we can shine a light in areas that hadn't really been lit up before. And then people can run forward with, with programs uh, in that area. So I think I've talked a little bit about the National Psychosis Registry, uh, which we established to understand the population uh, with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder in particular. And in the early days of building that, we were sending information out to VA facilities um, about those patients with SMI, as we call it, diagnoses, who had not had a recent VA encounter. So, you know, I have schizophrenia, but I haven't been to a VA facility in over a year. And the expectation in terms of quality of care is that people would be coming in three plus times a year, I believe. And so um, from that work came something that became called the SMI Reengage Initiative. So we've, I think, gosh, we're maybe up to our 23rd wave of generating information for VA facilities of um, VA patients with schizophrenia bipolar disorder who've fallen out of care. We send that out, facility local recovery coordinators, then review the list determine who's appropriate for outreach. For example, if someone's died or if someone's come back to VA care, then it wouldn't be necessary to do an outreach call. Then they make an effort to reach the veteran and to facilitate their coming back to VA care if that's what they'd like to do, if they're not you know, satisfied with non-VA care, et cetera. So that's been um, a really nice aspect of um, how getting this information, building these tools helps things to go forward. My dissertation was on geographic accessibility of VA care for patients with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. And so, you know, I had learned from another project at the School of Public Health, how sailors calculate distance between two points on the planet, you know, uh, based on the longitude and latitude. And it's kind of like the arc length. It's kind of a great circle thing. It's basically a simple formula, but you just need to, to program it. And so from that, I could calculate the population centroid of every zip code and basically figure out how far away VA patients lived from the nearest healthcare facility. And so um, that work allowed us to develop better measures of um, patients' geographic access to VA care. 
Um, and in that work also, I built on um, work of Donna Bedian and Panchansky and Thomas, these giants from the School of Public Health on access to care. So, so people talk a lot about access, you know, and often people say, well, if the person came in, then they have access. But two people might both come in once in a year, um, but not have the same level of access to care. You know, uh, one person may live, you know, 100 yards from the facility and be totally comfortable going in and be able to pay for it and all that. And another person might live, you know, substantially farther away, um, not be able to um, afford the care, et cetera, et cetera. And so at the School of Public Health at Michigan, there were and hopefully are still the famous five A's of access. So those are affordability. Can you afford the care? You know, probably not going to go if you can't pay for it and you're going to be charged. Is it available? So when you get there, do they have enough people to, to serve you? Or would it be like going to a McDonald's where they have only one person, you know? Um, is it accessible? You know, are you able to get there? And that's a measure both of the, um, the distance and also the time it takes to travel. Um, what Rashid Bashur would call the friction of space. Um, is it acceptable to you? And then finally, the fifth A of access is accommodation. Basically, is the health system accommodating people's um, needs to provide care? Do they have weekend hours, do they have evening hours, that kind of thing. And so for me, this is just a beautiful framework and I was very excited to move it forward. And it really has informed the work that we've done, particularly with regard to the primary care mental health integration evaluation um, in terms of thinking about how having mental health people right in the clinic could really facilitate someone being willing to talk with a provider or a support person about depression, et cetera. Maybe they could talk with a primary care provider, but they're unwilling to go in for a mental health clinic appointment. But if someone could knock on the door and say, sure, I'll, I'll talk with you, then, um, then that would be great. Thank you for adding that. Your study on suicide predictive modeling led to the BA's development and implementation of a new program called Recovery Engagement and Coordination for Health Veterans Enhanced Treatment. The acronym is REACHVET. Last month, your team's evaluation of REACHVET was published in JAMA Open Network. How did the VA develop this suicide risk prevention algorithm? How was it implemented so quickly? And what have you learned about the program's effectiveness? Thank you. Um, those are great questions. Um, well, again, it, it built from the infrastructure of building the capacity in VA to answer these questions. And VA, especially VA mental health, has really made a commitment to staffing, subject matter experts, programmers who can carefully approach these kinds of issues. And ReachFed, which we began work on in 2013, has its origins probably in like 2003 or 2004, when with Dr. Marsha Valenstein, a very brilliant, unfortunately retired uh, VA psychiatrist and University of Michigan faculty member, um, we looked at suicide risk among all VA patients with depression. And from that grew a lot of the suicide surveillance work. And along the way, we were having meetings every other week, sometimes every week, um, where it was kind of like 
topic after topic after topic, you know, are medications associated with suicide risk? Which medications? Are diagnoses associated? Which diagnoses? Um, and so that generated a lot of different findings. For example, patients with bipolar disorder have particularly elevated suicide rates compared to other patients. Patients living in rural areas have elevated risk. Um, and we were putting out kind of memo after memo to the VA field, basically saying, hey, you know, we found another risk factor. But for clinicians in practice, forcing patient after patient after patient, it's hard to distinguish, even among your patients with bipolar disorder, who has you know, particularly elevated risk. And clinical risk assessment instruments are somewhat limited. And um, especially when we were getting it started, weren't routinely implemented. And so the idea was to really just take a kitchen sink approach, um, look at the data that are routinely uh, um, saved as part of um, clinical care, sorry, and um, develop a model not to understand what drives suicide risk, but to try to identify individuals who, through a combination of their VHA clinical indicators over the prior two years, are at particularly high risk. And so, you know, it, it's viewed as this kind of futuristic super science, artificial intelligence, machine learning kind of stuff. But it was really just piling up 382 variables to say, okay, if we look at all of these measures, um, who's at the highest risk for suicide? And so we developed this big logistic regression model. And then for a holdout sample, like half of the people who died of suicide and half of the people who are in the comparison group, we then applied the parameters or the relationships for all of those 382 variables to then figure out who was at highest risk. And then for people who in, the, in that application were identified as at high risk, we looked to see whether they actually died from suicide. And this was retrospective you know, data that we're looking at. So it's not as though we knew people were at risk but weren't doing anything. This is stuff from the past. Um, and so we found substantially elevated risk and presented this to senior leadership. We, we briefed the VA secretary about this. And the secretary said, go ahead, like just develop a program for people in this top 0.1% risk tier at each facility and, um, and make it happen right away. And so, gosh, the first paper was published in 2015. Um, in 2017, we published a follow-up paper uh, with thanks to Ron Kessler at Harvard Medical School that boiled down the 382 to 62 variables, or 61, I forget which, um, that most efficiently characterized suicide risk. And that made it easier, easier for us to implement each month. Um, and by really early 2017, this ReachVet program was in place. So each month, each facility gets a list of patients who are in their top tier of predicted risk for suicide. And the ReachVet coordinator at each site will connect with the providers associated with each of the patients, who will assess the patient's records, determine whether outreach is appropriate, and look for clinical enhancements for care. And so, you know, that's been in place now for a while. And um, we wanted to assess the impact of this program. And so we did a, at first, a difference in differences analysis, where we looked for people in the top tier of risk 
um, during the period when the program existed compared to the top tier of risk before the program existed. And we looked at their changes for each patient in the prior six months versus the subsequent six months. And so we had a difference for each of those two groups and we looked at the difference in differences. But we submitted this to um, a great journal for review and they said, no, please change it to a triple difference design to adjust for cohort and period effects. We now look at the changes for the top tier risks and for a next tier down tier of risk. Um, and so I think that we have really a very strong design and I was very pleased that it was published in JAMA Open Network. Um, and the findings are encouraging. They are not, ReachFed is not a magic bullet. Um, it is not a magic bullet. Um, it serves people in the top 0.1% risk tier. And together that group accounts for a small portion of all suicides that occur over a 12 month period. I think it's something like 4.6% of suicides in the first month are in the top 0.1%, and maybe it's 1.6% uh, through 12 months. So if ReachVent were able to eliminate all suicides in this group that has the highest identified risk, then um, it would still make only a small dent in the overall elevated rate for veterans, which is about 50% greater than for non-veteran US adults. Well, the, the program has been shown to have positive effects in a number of ways. Um, it's associated with greater outpatient engagement. It's associated with reduced emergency department visits um, and reduced, um, let's see, inpatient mental health stays and reduced documentation of new uh, suicide attempts. Um, and also for patients who hadn't received a suicide risk safety plan, um, in the prior two years, it's associated with greater you know, quality of care for suicide prevention. However, we do not see effects for suicide mortality or, uh, or other causes of death that we were hoping might be affected. Um, it might be, well, actually we believe that the analyses are currently underpowered. And as we have additional cause of death data from CDC, but we'll continue the evaluation to assess whether there are effects on suicide. But this gets at just how difficult it is to prevent suicide. Uh, it has many causes, and this is an intervention that's focused on a very high-risk population um, who are already engaged with care. So these enhancements had some positive effects, but unfortunately, we haven't seen a measurable impact on suicide mortality per se. And I want to ask about other ways that the work you've done and the studies that you've conducted have impacted care for veterans. So in these roles that you've led in, in research and mental health operations and the suicide surveillance work, how have those findings from those analyses affected healthcare for veterans? Yeah, well, Establishing the psychosis registry created a baseline for VA by which facilities had a regular source for the number of patients with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder who were receiving care at those facilities. And that affected uh, policy expectations for the availability of specific programs to serve those populations. So simply building the resource created a resource that people could then 
link to and say, well, if you're at least this big, then you should have, for example, the VA version of um, a sort of community treatment uh, for patients with serious mental illness. VA's delivery of integrated mental health in the context of primary care hopefully has had good effects. Um, I mean, millions and millions of veterans have received mental health encounters through the program. And uh, we found early on that those sites that implemented the program had greater recognition of mental health needs uh, than other sites by providers at those sites. So I think those were really positive outcomes. You know, the quest goes on. And I noticed that age is a factor in some of the studies as well as gender. Can you explain how differences in demographics may be associated with mental health services access and utilization? Sure. I mean, um, I mean, there there are a lot of social factors that relate to um, attitudes, uh, willingness to seek care, um, and um, and also the uh, prevalence of, uh, of healthcare um, problems uh, likely also varies by age and gender. It has not been a focus for me, um, but um, you know, in work on looking at geographic accessibility to care, we did show that older VA patients with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder were more sensitive to distance barriers than younger patients. Um, and this really gets at the idea that access should be understood at the individual level. You know, um, you know I'm me and I'm, um, I am or I'm not willing to go and see my clinician if I have a certain healthcare problem. Um, and, um, and so, you know, I don't necessarily fit into the same category as everyone else um, in my community, uh, in my demographic group, et cetera. So um, that wonderful five days of access framework um, really should be understood at the level of individuals. Um, and that's why it's really important for, uh, for clinicians to have really open uh, and effective relationships with their patients or clients. I mean, I, I could talk a little bit more about other findings that, that we've seen with regard, say, for example, for suicide, where suicide rates among men, both veterans and non-veterans, are substantially higher than for women. However, among veteran women, um, the differential between their suicide rates relative to non-veteran women is greater than the differential for veteran men versus non-veteran men. So what does this tell us about um, the experiences um, and risks for uh, women's, women who have served in the military uh, with regard to suicide prevention? Um, over time, women have become a, a larger and larger uh, subset of people who are serving in the military uh, and receiving VA care. And there are increasing initiatives to ensure uh, appropriate care and access for, for everyone in VA. 
So what are the biggest takeaways that everyone listening should have from this conversation as we all observe Veterans Day on November 11th and as we move into the holiday season, which can trigger feelings of loneliness among individuals? Um, This is actually a hard question for me because I don't want to speak for other people and I'm not a clinician. You know, I think about my father, my uncles, um, you know, and their service. And, you know, I really appreciate that they served and I appreciate how they served and um, that, that it was something that they did for the country, for the, their communities. And, um, and, you know, everyone I think has uh, family members uh, who've had experiences uh, serving the country in many ways, including in the armed forces. And I think we really should honor all of the service that people are giving for each other and the sacrifices that people have made uh, through military service, which uh, the sacrifices are substantial. Uh, The separation from one's family, the stresses and experiences of uh, deployment, not to mention the experience of of military duty um, and combat, heaven forbid, Uh, and the injuries that result. Um, And my thanks to all veterans who have served, Um, my thanks to those veterans who have served who I've spoken with and have shared their experience, Um, my respect and appreciation for their willingness to come forward and talk about their experiences and to seek care to help themselves and their families and their communities. And um, I hope that everyone has a great Veterans Day holiday and thank you to all the veterans who have served. We couldn't agree more. Dr. McCarthy, thank you so much for your time. Before we close, I just wanted to ask if there is anything else that you would like to share. Just that it's a pleasure to work in the VA. It's a great mission. Um, I'm very honored to be part of it. And I would encourage anyone who's interested in working in VA, please feel free to reach out to me. Um, I just think it's just a really exciting and um, positive place to work. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Michigan Minds podcast, a production of the University of Michigan. Join the conversation on social media with hashtag UMichImpact.